0: Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at Burrow.com slash ACAST. That's Burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Team Human is an ad-free community effort supported by real people like Ella Maximilian, Jeff Deal, Danielle Avery, Bunn, and Heidi Vership. Join them and me and the rest of the team by going to teamhuman.fm and clicking on support. You'll get access to our Discord channel, live salons, free admission to live events, and our Team Human team feed with special interviews, talks, and rare conversations. See you there. You're on Team Human, Conscious Intervention in the Machine. This is where we connect, for real, about challenges facing a species with the obligation to steward nature and one another toward less cruel and more compassionate outcomes, where we report back from the field, share notes, celebrate solidarity, and head back out with renewed vigor and hope. I'm Douglas Rushkoff, and I'm on Team Human. Playing for Team Human today, my old friend and president of the Center for the Study of Digital Life, Mark Stallman.
1: It will be our children and our grandchildren who ultimately will need to resolve this. The world is not going to disappear, but we are in a very perilous circumstance. Mark will be explaining East, West,
0: and digital, the three spheres he believes are shaping the future of civilization and how understanding the way they interact can help us strategize a way forward for humans. I'm Douglas Rushkoff, and we're all on Team Human. Well, it's been an interesting couple of weeks. I'm as destabilized as any of you. And as a result, I guess, I've been spending a bit more time on the Team Human Discord um, that you're all invited to, especially if you're a, a Team Human subscriber, it's one of your benefits, um, and it's a great place for the, the the community to sort of come together. I did a uh, we're calling them salons, basically a little kind of impromptu audio gathering uh, with their new sort of audio room clubhouse like feature on Discord, and it was nice to just to boy see who popped in there. We had a nice conversation about. God, the world, and meditation, and a bit of a meta conversation about the uh, the Discord channel itself. I mean, interestingly, I mean, like any community, we've been groping a bit toward what's our purpose, what are we doing, and there was a, a a kind of small movement to figure out kind of the governance of the team human discord, I guess in some ways as a kind of a, a fractal example, kind of an as below, so above experiment in governance. And, you know, what does it look like and how do we pick things? And, um, people made, uh, uh, you know different discussion threads and figuring out you know what's the best organization and all and they got to a, a, a conversation about you know the purpose of team human and the discord what is our movement where are we going out how are we doing stuff what are what are the causes what are the the uh, how are we going to organize and um you know i got back to that same place that that there's a lot of great organizing going on out there in the world already. There are enough terrific climate change organizations and and DAOs and technology for uh, saving humanity from this thing or that thing. You know, Team Human is not uh, so much uh, a uh, place to. Uh, organize so much as a place for the organizers to come back and and be with with each other again to um, get kind of a, a respite or recharge. You know, we, we come in from the field, from the various things we're doing, and uh, support one another and, and give each other advice. So uh, climate activist can talk to a, a, an economic activist, can talk to a, a person who's just trying to help People in their community uh, get through the day or talk with a person who's doing a lot of uh, meditation or sitting uh, and talk with someone else who's who's uh, working on massage therapy. It's more that we have a a kind of a certain sensibility in common about uh, what human beings are, why we matter, about that, that. People who can kind of enjoy the soft, squishy, in-between, liminal weirdness of what it means to be human and then kind of take that sensibility out into their work and their organizations and their schools and wherever else. You don't like build it as a thing. It's more like we are uh, kind of stealth agents for the human in all the things we do, and then you come back to the Discord or to this show kind of to like, right, there's other ones. There's there's a bunch of us here working on this same thing. But it's like we don't build the structure around it. And I know there's a lot of people who say, no, oh, it's your responsibility to build the structure around it. No, that's the whole point. The structures are out there. We're not the structure. We're the squishy. How long can you tolerate the structureless squishy? I mean, that in some ways is the is the exercise here. But meanwhile, you know, through this, this dark, dark, Global period, you know. I've been getting a lot of email from people asking me not just to to build a, a, an organization, you know, that that they can can work at, but uh, just for me to kind of cheer them up. They're they're looking for me to tell them, you know, how can we see all the stuff that's happening in a positive light? And you know, what's the good that comes of this? and i i know i i've, I've kind of got a reputation for that and it's a thing i used to do in the 90s a lot my my friend david peskovitz he he called it the rushkov flip and it's this little kind of intellectual exercise or flourish of finding the good in anything bad and I think I started doing it because I was one of the first people out there in the late 80s and early 90s trying to make people less afraid of all the new stuff coming down the pike. And not just digital technology, but but new forms of culture and music and plant medicines and even chaos mathematics. So I ended up spending much of my life and my... Career looking on the bright side of things. You know, uh, technology, media, and our newfound power to express ourselves in a digital age. It really did once give me great hope for the future of the human collective. What What could we do? What would we do? And my books and articles, they were correspondingly and necessarily optimistic about our ability to dig ourselves out of the environmental and economic messes that we were creating for ourselves and disproportionately for the global poor. But Just last week, someone on a podcast, they asked me why I'm not an optimist anymore. He had spoken with a friend. Actually, he spoke with Grant Morrison, who had read the galley of my upcoming book about the tech billionaire mindset. And he was concerned that my work no longer reflects so much positivity about our fate. And I don't know. Well, I think of the book more as a loving, if biting critique of the -the over-the-top, Escape fantasies and self-sovereignty and techno-solutionism of the of the uh, tech elite. The podcasters worry. It kind of got me thinking about optimism as a burden. Throughout the '90s and even the early 2000s, I think I saw it as my job to reinterpret pretty much any negative thing in the world. As an opportunity for positivity. Kind of like, oh, it's not a bad trip, it's a good trip. You know, the the dot-com boom? At least people are recognizing the importance of the net. The dot-com crash? Well, that just means the net fought off its commercial infection. Trump's election? Well, maybe his nationalism is just a, a primitive precursor to a new era of localism. Still, it's getting harder and harder To keep recasting global events is one form of positive growth or another. And when we look at how much the ocean rise is already baked into climate impact, no matter how quickly we turn off every light bulb on the planet, it's harder to contort myself into an optimistic frame of mind. But since when is optimism about the future a requirement of happiness, connection, coherence, or even appropriate action? And moreover, since when is it an obligation of every thinker to flip everything into some kind of optimistic frame? And moreover, what if civilization is is really about to have to deal with a billion or more climate and conflict refugees? While accepting the probability may make me look like a pessimist, I think it's actually more hopeful and certainly more effective to believe we can rise to this occasion than to pretend it's not really happening. You know, whatever I think about our likelihood of evading global catastrophe— The steps I would take to prevent it are the same ones I would take to prepare for it, increase my capacity for compassion, build local networks of support, uh, develop regionally sustainable sources of food, water, and energy, and figure out how to welcome and scale everything to include large populations of incoming immigrants. Even if everything goes to hell— and none of those preparations work. They also happen to be the way to have the most fun and meaningful experience as all that happens. If our civilization or perhaps even our species is doomed, let's at least enact something closer to mutual palliative care than a descent into paranoid fantasies of individual survival through exclusion and violence. Critics have compared this this mindset to the futility of the band playing music on the deck of the Titanic as the ship went down. But think of it. They played music on the deck of the Titanic as the ship went down. What more beautiful response to inevitable calamity can you imagine? That's not optimism, but neither is it acceptance of defeat. It is the human spirit celebrating its claim to existence, expression of joy, and ability to comfort in the face of death itself. And the sooner we adopt such unconditional heroism ourselves, the better chances we're going to have of navigating the waters ahead. When things get weird, I uh, turn to different friends for their help really seeing things differently, kind of for shaking me out of my perspective or reality tunnel and, and into another one. And one of the friends I enjoy doing this with the most is uh, Mark Stallman, who is uh, president of the Center for the Study of Digital Life, where I'm a fellow along with a bunch of other really fun people. And um, Mark is particularly good at uh, challenging one's uh, view of the world. He He's he's an unforgiving if loving teacher. Uh, he reminds me if you know Buddhism, he reminds me of the Vimalakirti. You know the 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 Buddha. You know would have all these students, and when he had someone who was kind of really tough, like a a, a mind he couldn't like, just crack easily, he'd go, oh, go see my friend Vimalakirti, and that guy, you know, he'll take care of you. So <laughs> I see Mark that way. I've actually sent people to him when I'm when I'm trying to shake somebody loose to something. I'm like, oh, go talk to Mark he'll, he'll, he'll take care of you. Um, uh, Mark is a really interesting, interesting and wonderful guy. He's had a very varied range of experiences from, you know, biochemistry and psychedelics to taking AOL public, um, to being a, a, a Ong scholar and McLuhan scholar, uh, uh, just a fascinating, varied human being. And, uh, Someone who believes deeply in the soul as well, like I do. So it, it's always kind of reassuring, if challenging, to engage with him. Um, we're going to be talking today um, largely about the three spheres um, that Marx sees as kind of the, the main uh, centers of uh, kind of global influence right now, the West, the East, and digital. But I acknowledge it leaves out the global South. And not because the Global South doesn't exist, but because it's not one of the spheres really attempting to dominate the global conversation right now. You know, the, the Global South, if anything, is still um, emerging from the competition of colonialists to dominate it. It's just, you know, emerging and hopefully uh, moving towards um, sustainability. But the three spheres is more really about the, the conflict, the competition for uh, dominating the, kind of the, the, the world order right now. The fact that we're, we leave the Global South out of that conversation is not that they do not exist as part of the, the human organism, but they're not um, as actively engaged in trying to take over um, the rest of the world. So it, it's, a, it's a conversation that's limited to kind of the northern hemisphere, but it's a pretty big hemisphere. And there's certainly a lot to be said for the way the dynamics of these three spheres really do define global conflict and global peace right now. So here's my conversation with Mark Stallman. There's this war going on, right, that I think people are going to be aware of when this broadcasts in a in week or which, whenever. Which,
1: which war are you talking about?
0: I guess well, the headline war is with the stuff in Ukraine and Russia
1: and stuff. Exactly. That war. There's... But that that's not the war that's going on.
0: Right. That's the thing. So I was reading this article today about <laughs> India and India kind of being forced to sort of pick sides here because you know they 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 <laughs> they do customer service and all those uh, uh, human human technology skills they do for both the U.S. And for Russia, and it's like, oh, they're going to have to sort of pick now because Russia has been really helping them in, in some ways. And and I couldn't help but think, oh, that, that fucking Stallman is yeah. right. That there's this there's these three spheres thing. We mentioned it when you were on yeah, a year or two ago. And it was like, oh, yeah, it's a nice <clears throat> little background thing going on. And now I'm like, oh, man, <laughs> go east the West and digital are this three sphere problem and everybody else is lining up one way or another. All right. I'm going to be this kind of digital and the East. Or I'm going to be that kind of digital and the West. I'm just going to be East and not digital. I'm good. But it's like how it, everyone has to orient themselves according to those three things. And we're watching a, a, you know those games like like uh where all the kids run to one side of the gym or run to the other yeah. side of the gym yeah. except yeah, yeah, there's yeah. three sides of the gym and it's so confusing <laughs> um but it was like it was so there it was so there uh, all of a sudden it was like oh my gosh this makes crystal sense to me in the in the way that it I can't make sense of it which is the beauty of it right i i am I have total awareness now of the intractability and incalculability of this problem. (laughs) So I thought this is the time to come back.
1: (laughs) Sure, why not?
0: (laughs) And understand this, this war, again, not, I mean, and war is real and people are dying and there's all that, but this war is the figure on something that's a ground issue that if it's that ground issue is not looked at, we're going to keep getting figures like this.
1: Correct. So let me let me first note that I am a uh, hundred, a 1, thousand, ten thousand percent in favor of peace. I am not a warrior. I managed to avoid uh, Vietnam by becoming a seminarian. I actually went to the University of Chicago and enrolled in a study of the Old Testament at Chicago Divinity School for a short period of time. There were about half of the birth dates in the United States meant automatic conscription. And I was in that category. And they had eliminated graduate school exemptions. They eliminated medical school exemptions. The only exemption that remained in place was uh, if you wanted to become a priest or a pastor. So you can factor that into all the rest that you know about me. But uh, I'm not a warrior, but I am somebody who has pointed out that we are now in a much more dangerous situation than we have been for all of our lives. And you're correct to bring us back to our uh, earlier team human conversation. Thank you for remembering that we brought this up. And no, it's not a nice background topic. Right. It, it is a fundamental background. So the three spheres, what caused them? What are they? And why cannot they be reconciled? Why, why are we in a situation where avoiding World War III has suddenly become massively more difficult? Yeah. Well, as you know, we've talked about this. Civilizations are f- founded based upon writing technologies. Writing technologies literally shape your subconscious. When you learn how to write, which, of course, is the necessary component for literacy, for reading, when you learn how to read and write as a child, teaching the ABCs is a lot more difficult than teaching them how to say da-da mama. Right. Getting them into the verbal frame is something that they have been hearing their entire lives in the womb. This is a a very familiar process by the time you're born. Using symbols to represent all of this is not natural in that sense. It's something that has to be added. It's it's not in our genetics. It's, It's not something that comes with you being born. Although being born into a civilization kind of sets you off in one direction or another. And we believe there are three principal directions that a young human can be sent as their subconscious. And in particular, their ability to recognize forms in the world in which they live. There are three basic approaches to that with some important modifications that I'll note. I presume that most people, if not all listening to this, have grown up in an alphabetic world. Growing up in an alphabetic world, you tend to think the symbols are meaningless. They kind of represent phonetics. We can move them around. We can scramble the eggs any way we want to. That is what we call the West Sphere. That is not what happens in China. In China or Japan or India, both of which are important components of this, you're brought up believing that this symbol on the page inherently has meaning. And not only does it inherently have meaning, but that it's very old. So you you do not imagine that this is a open free-for-all, but rather something which is deeply embedded in your parents, grandparents, and so forth the lives of everyone who's lived in your civilization that is a fundamentally different psychology
0: right so to us it's just like it may as well be ascii too right it's just correct. codons of some kind
1: that's correct it's that's it's, correct. It's,
0: it's like that the even like in in the dna it's like just those letters the f g a s right. whatever it's that right. right right but to them it's well. like a thing it's a it is cat somehow, or it is house, and
1: everything that we mean by house or home or... Right. Now, the most obvious example of that is is the Chinese character for human, which is just simply two strokes, which resembles a walking human being. Now, I don't want to imply here that there is no phonetics, that there haven't been other overlays, there have been. So, in fact, uh, written Chinese much like written Japanese uh, and and Japanese Korean, these are all very interesting ways of dealing with this are not hieroglyphics. Right. They have changed over time and uh, they've incorporated many phonetic elements to them. You know, Chinese pronunciations have a a wide variety uh, of ways that, that that can be done. But here's the important point. You're born into a civilization that thinks that these things are fundamental in the East You are not born into a civilization that thinks these things are fundamental in the West. In the West, you study many different languages. You may study different alphabets. You may rearrange the letters as you wish to. It's a whole different relationship to the grammar of the world around you. So grammar is a much richer topic than we give it credit for today. That's East and West. The third sphere is one that you and I are both familiar with because we know a lot of people who spend their lives coding. For them, code, not the alphabet, not the logograms, is a fundamental way that you express yourself, the way that you understand the grammar of the world around you. These three spheres overlap each other. They have together replaced the notion of globalism that we had particularly strongly coming out of World War II, and as a result of that, all of the sensibilities which have been hard formed into one or another of those spheres, and very importantly, all of the institutions based upon those are now in jeopardy. Now, that includes Wall Street, it includes United Nations, it includes the Communist Party of China, it includes the Vatican, all of these institutions particularly the newer ones but also the older ones are now in severe jeopardy there is a, a physics actually a geophysics problem known as the three-body problem if you're familiar with chinese science fiction you may have uh, read a copy of shishin news trilogy the trilogy by the way is named remembrance of earth's past Hmm. fascinating title for the total but the first book as you would recall is called Three body problem and in that he is referring to another planet in which there are multiple suns and it is impossible to solve the gravitational relationship therefore clashes conflicts have been substantially increased which is not true in a two body problem so the problem that we are now facing so we've got a you know endless stream of stories and op-eds and these are the figures uh, of our uh information space as people are calling it now which itself is a major problem
0: yeah
1: human beings do not live in information space and we are not information processors but we'll leave that for another conversation
0: (laughs) That's, the, that's one of the main team human messages, of course, that we are not machines.
1: Yeah, we are not uh, machines, we are not computers. Uh, but in this circumstance, you have a very severe misunderstanding on the part of the West. So now let's get into the current conflicts. I'm quite confident because of my sources in Russia that today's average intelligence of Not necessarily involved with any secrets, not necessarily involved with any government activities, not necessarily involved with the military. Today's average intelligent Russian is convinced that what is happening is that the attacks by the West sphere on Russia, which obviously were the substance of what we call the Cold War, which in many ways has never been resolved, Mm. are forcing Russia to align with the East.
0: Right. And this would be even, you know, uh, uh, many uh, uh, American theorists would argue similar things. I mean, they get yelled at on Twitter, but, you know, an Aaron Maté or somebody is called a a Russian apologist when he's actually just trying to show, well, look, NATO did that. And then there were nuclear things there. And then we went past East Germany and that that Russia may have been put in this bizarre, difficult position. The, The problem with that for people like me and many of our listeners is Okay, they could say that. And maybe in his interviews with Oliver Stone, Putin said that. But then it's like on top of that, he's saying, oh, the Ukrainians are Nazis and they're involved in a genocide and I'm going to poison this one and that one. So it's very hard. Uh, There's a difference between Putin, this guy, what he says and what he does and the Russia problem that you're talking about. And I just want to make sure people understand we're not saying, oh, that they're justified in doing bad things or what they're doing, but just that there's this other set of circumstances going on.
1: There is no doubt that anyone who's been paying attention, and here I will simply cite Henry Kissinger, who, as far as I'm concerned, has been paying the closest attention, including the recognition that the old way of thinking about these things is out the window because of artificial intelligence. So Henry Kissinger is the only one that I've run into of the sort you're talking about, who says, oh, no, no, wait a minute. There's another sphere that is imposing itself on top of all of this. So that is a, a failure yes. of most of the commentators.
0: Yes. And even Putin of all people, and I haven't quoted in, in my next book, even Putin says AI is the thing that whoever figures out ai first right.
1: will control the world period right right the chinese believe that also mm. the americans in particular and here i, I take most of my uh, guidance if you will from the human centered artificial intelligence group at stanford university so those, they're abbreviated h a i pronounced high and so i recommend for your listeners if they want to be up to date in what's happening. Just go to the Stanford High site and they have conferences all the time and they've just published a a big fat index of all the AI activities in the world. It's the best place to get everything all summarized. Right.
0: And that's better than going to Fast Company and reading the latest adapted press release from Google. Right. Correct.
1: (laughs) Correct. But but still, since I know the people at Stanford, I know they have not figured this out. They are working for the US government. The whole Stanford effort and the money behind it winds up actually being plugged in. And the, the key to this, although you might, to be fair, have a question about whether this is a digital sphere operation or a Western sphere operation, but the deep engagement of Eric Schmidt, who is one of the people who helped to personally fund what's going on at Stanford, or at least getting off the ground. His very close association with the US Pentagon his chairmanship of the National um, Assessment on Artificial Intelligence and the way that Stanford is plugged into helping the U.S. government deal with handing out grants. Now, when you're in a grant uh, handing out business, you probably want to disguise somewhat what your ultimate objective is and align it with those who are sending you the money. So I think it's probably fair to say that what's happening at Stanford is somewhere, as you alluded before, it's somewhere one foot in the Western world, one foot in the digital world. We don't know how that's all going to turn out. What the Chinese have been doing, however, in, and so this actually came up this morning, Chinese stocks, many of them, stocks that people may be familiar with, Tencent, uh, Alibaba, Baidu, they were up 30% in this morning's Chinese market because of a single phrase in a Chinese government statement that was interpreted as we're no longer going to be leaning on these companies. So as you probably know, China has been aggressively trying to bring those companies closer to Chinese policy. Right. Bring them to
0: heel. Right. Well, these are trillion dollar companies. They they, they, that's sort of China's model as well. We'll let you do the capitalist thing and go compete and become big. And then, you know, like Jack Ma or somebody will either get rid of the CEO if he's not cooperating properly or force the company to 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 line up with China's nationalist agenda.
1: Well, it's not a nationalist agenda. It's an East agenda, East mm. sphere agenda. So once again, if we bring three spheres into this conversation, What is happening is the East is attempting to exert control over the digital sphere before Jack Ma disappeared and got re-educated. He was aggressively talking. I think re-education is actually the Chinese term. (laughs) Yeah, He was aggressively talking about his independence and the independence of digital and how this was not dependent on China anymore. And Mm. Chinese civilization was not at the core of what they were doing. They were doing something brand new. And all sorts of things would happen to human beings. Good things would happen to human beings right. because of this. That was the lead up uh, to that. So, right. so he was speaking for the digital sphere alone. Correct. Correct. Right. So but then, then
0: just for my head and other people's head, when we're talking about the difference between East and West, it's like the, the Western vision of globalism that I was raised with was like, the United Nations, right? Yes. Oh, United Nations is global. You would say, no, 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 no. The United Nations is west a Western vision of global. So China goes and, and becomes a member of this thing, but that's a Western institution, right?
1: Completely. Right. So uh, w- one way to note that, if you care to, is you can actually Wikipedia the United Nations building. There is a separate Wikipedia entry for the building. And when you go to that Wikipedia entry, it will tell you in some detail how the original headquarters of the United Nations was sited in Pocanico Hills in Westchester, literally in the backyard of the Rockefeller mansion. Mm. Then when people figured out, as you know, because you spent some time in Westchester, it ain't so easy to get there. Right. And so expecting the entire world to come to your backyard Was probably a bit of hubris. So, therefore, the Rockefellers donated a plot of land on the East River. But going into the background of the United Nations, and for that matter, World Trade Organization, and for that matter, the Bilderberg Organization, and on and on, Trilateral Commission, these are all Western attempts. Trilateral is a particularly interesting one because David Rockefeller went to the Bilderbergs and said, We're not global. We don't have the East. Hmm. And in in particular, he said, we need to bring Japan into the Bilderbergs. And in particular, I nominate uh, Akio Morito, the head of Sony, to be the representative of Japan. The result of that is the European Union. Right. The result of that is what Bilderberg has said. No, 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 no. We're not doing that. We're going to make our own United States. And so, yes, these institutions, United Nations in particular, are fundamentally Western institutions and their decline right. uh, is another indicator of the difficulties in the West.
0: Right. But we did get I know this is an aside, we meaning the West, <clears throat> we did kind of get Japan to do it right there. The, the working men, they're all wearing, you know, they started wearing Western suits and creating, uh, uh, you know, they combined sort of their, their family companies with Western style corporations and a Western style stock market. And they invested in, you know, Sony invested in, 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 in the, the film industry of the U.S. and they bought Rockefeller Center. I mean, they did something China did not,
1: right? right. That's <laughs> China correct. China didn't is, do all that. That, that is all, all correct. And, and all of that, of course, stems in large measure from the fact that we defeated them in World War II oh, right. and then occupied them and then engineered them. So current Japanese society was actually engineered by uh, Rockefeller social scientists. Following World War II, the story that, that I have gotten is that Ruth Benedict's uh, book, the, the Chrysanthemum and the Sword, was on uh, General MacArthur's nightstand. So he would read another chapter, Benedict being the, the anthropologist who never visited Japan, but who nonetheless had enormous authority in this. So the American imposition on Japan never happened in China. Right. If, for instance, the fight between the Chinese communists and Kuomintang had gone the other direction, then you would wind up with a very different China, which we now have, in, in fact, in Taiwan. So so Taiwan is a blend of East and West. Japan is also a blend of East and West. Another fellow, in addition to yourself, at the the Center for the Study of Digital Life, which is where I hang my hat every day, is named Matsuhiro Takamura. And he's been involved in many, many aspects of all of this. He recently had um, returning to Tokyo. He had a series of lectures and he slotted me in as his Cleanup hitter. So I was Mm. the final lecture in the Takamorosan series. I presented three spheres, East, West and digital to a Japanese audience through Japanese translators. The questions that came back to me were, oh, so we're caught in between. Right. All three spheres, in fact.
0: Right. As is India. Uh, They're in these in-between places, as is Africa. Absolutely. I mean, wh- who? What side? Who's you teaming up with? What are you doing? Well, and and I don't even understand. I mean, so there's that. There's that problem. And then there's I can understand. And I've spent my life looking at how are certain Western features amplified by digital. So I talk about money as a symbol system and runaway Mm -hmm. capitalism and exponentialism and Peter Thiel. And you get, you know, I understand what happens with the West on digital didn't turn out to be uh, uh, Tim Leary's psychedelic culture on digital, which is what I wanted. It turned out to be (laughs) Wall Street and something else on digital. Right. I mean, it wasn't my I didn't win. Fine. All right. It's not me. It's not me on digital. But China on digital is something else. Right? right. It's not uh, exponential runaway capitalism symbol systems because we started out with the alphabet that you're talking about, which was already a symbol system. So digital amplified our abstraction on abstraction. That's why you right. get It, it, it is meta. important. It is meta. important.
1: That, right. Yes. We, we went abstract. And, and in the process, we discarded our soul.
0: Right. Which is what I'm all upset about because the soul is not abstract. <laughs> the soul is very know. real it's very real right <laughs> And we see the soul when we the more abstract we get, the more we see the soul as noise as that in-between horrible, wet human stuff
1: right right. now the Chinese sticky right
0: exactly oh female dark (laughs) scary nature mushrooms Uh, uh, right so that's the west but in the east then this is what I don't understand and and I know this is it sounds like a side topic but to me it's the whole thing to understand what is what
1: does digital do to the east it makes them remember what has now happened is that China has promulgated throughout their entire academic systems, departments of Chinese classics. Hmm. They have added to that in the last couple of years, departments of Western classics. So when I heard probably three and a half, four years ago, that there was a totally new Chinese translation of Aristotle, that led me to ask, well, why would they bother doing that? And the answer wound up being, well, as far as we're concerned, Aristotle was Chinese. They're actually taking credit as a result of the Silk Road of old Chinese ideas, making it into Western Europe. So there are many accounts of what may have given risen to uh, Athens. It it certainly was not on that one hill in that one corner of Greece. They flowed in. Oh yeah, um, from yeah. north, south, all directions.
0: Exactly. I know. Uh, you know, uh, both rabbis and Vedanta teachers who will argue that Torah is Indian. You know that, that that's right. where that, that's where it came from. But the interesting thing here is, like, from a superficial perspective, you could say, okay, digital is coming, a new kind of global is coming, so China would want to teach patriotic things. About you know to get them to feel more Chinese, like in America we might teach like I don't know river dance or something. I don't know what they would teach, but that's not what you're saying. You're saying they're they're retrieving some kind of core essential uh, 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 formula formulative texts, in other words, texts about how they form how they how they generate forms in their society so that their formability is not erased by digital, but they can actually, we've got these new tools. We're creating a new architecture. So let's retrieve who and what we are and how we see the world in order to extend that rather than be at the mercy of either digital or Eric Schmidt and the West, when they
1: take over the space. Absolutely correct. And so once upon a time, there was a, a radio show and then television show. Uh, uh, Groucho Marx was the host. And uh, at some point in the show, I think you're probably too young to remember this, mm-hmm. a penguin. I think it was, No, it was a duck. I, th- I think a duck dropped down from the ceiling with a cigar. Why a duck? Uh, because <laughs> of a, a vest has no sleeves. <laughs> uh, and that was actually Marx Brothers routine. Yes. But the duck with the cigar said, you have said the magic word. Right. We did that too. Yeah. You just said the magic word, forms. Mm. And therein lies our difficulty. We have taken our understanding of form. The soul is the form of the human being. In fact, all living things have souls, which is their form. So all forms are not identical. And indeed, each human being is unique. So. Taking forms and reducing them to information, where the word form has been buried in between a prefix and a suffix, is a deliberate fudge to keep us away from understanding forms. Furthermore, just think of all the other words you know that have form as their root reform, deform, inform. These are are conform, all words yeah. conform? These are all words that, that get us away from an understanding of form and turn us into formula, which was the the right. the, the, so, no, the word that you just said.
0: So they're all so, impairments of the soul in correct. that sense. Yeah. That's
1: correct. So I got introduced to a fellow this morning, and the guy who introduced us said, You've got to listen to this lecture, the guy is giving. So the, the guy gets up and he's giving a lecture and he starts immediately launching into how information is what everybody thinks that they need but it will never get you to an understanding how information is inherently detached from understanding now we have not yet had our zoom call so i don't know how he's going to take what i'm about to tell you but i'll tell you anyway it turns out that the inner workings below consciousness if you will the 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 white of um, sweet material between the two cookie halves of an Oreo. That's that messy, squishy stuff. And our external senses, our one half, our intellect, our ability to conceptualize and abstract is the other half. But as Marshall McLuhan was always telling us, the action is in the gap. It's the in-between stuff that matters. Right. So Coming to understand that in-between stuff, of which there are a variety of, of ways of approaching it, but they always come up with some version of what I'm about to describe. The external senses need to somehow be collated. They somehow need to be coordinated. They somehow need to cohere. That is a faculty of the soul known for millennia as the common sense, or in Latin, sensus communis. Eric McLuhan actually wrote a very interesting book about this topic. Unfortunately, he didn't go further. What comes after that? Well, it turns out that the common view of this is that what we refer to as imagination is this, the storage area for the common sense. It has not yet been timestamped. It has not yet been correlated with other images. It is literally a bank of image storage. That, however, can be easily manipulated. And particularly if we find ourselves in front of a machine that deliberately distorts everything, the television set. So this
0: is where, this is Eric, or this is Walter Lippmann's the pictures in their heads or even Plato's picture there, there are these pictures in your head before they're processed, or that's a bad word because it's very computery, but you know what I mean? Before they're the, before we've made sense, before we've assigned them value and meaning they're there and computers can do that for us or my Western sensibility can do that for me or my Chinese sensibility can do that for me. But we're taking all that stuff, all our perception and, 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 giving it form really for our,
1: for our, that, our that, that, that is correct. And, and so to complete the story of the inner senses, there are two more, which are the critical ones, which is where percepts are formed, where we, we recognize uh, forms in particular grammar, where we, we, we set ourselves up to try to understand the, Uh, inherent organization of the world in which we are operating and how we're going to deal with it. This is something, by the way, I think in the typical stage theories of psychological development, you've probably seen this in terms of your own child as the development went through. I certainly saw it with, with mine between the age of roughly eight and puberty, call that 12. That time period is what Piaget, Jean Piaget, called the concrete operational phase that is the phase in which we incorporate the structures, the understanding of the structures and how we're going to deal with them. We might conform. We might rebel. There's a wide variety of human reactions. Every individual human being will do it differently. And then, of course, puberty comes in and we, our bodies are biologically being prepared for reproduction. And we could swamp with all sorts of hormones. And and that whole process is largely set aside. So in some sense as another colleague of mine would have put it by the age of 12 the cake is baked and it's sitting on the counter cooling off I'm not saying it is impossible for adults even very old adults like myself to learn new tricks right and but that's it's what, extremely difficult yeah.
0: well that's what I want to get to then and and maybe in more now that I, you've got that the essential download of these ideas. I want to do a little bit more of a back and forth on, okay, so I'm raised West. I go to high school, do all the things, read all the literature, go to Princeton, drop a bunch of acid, start reading the I Ching and the Tao, and I go, like a lot of people, oh, man, we're wrong. They're right. <laughs> we're all progress and linear and ends justify the means and get to the climax male Aristotelian orgasm curve, blah, blah thing. They're like, oh, cool. The background, the landscape's what matters, not the subject, the community, not the individual. Um, the forms of the language are these things. They're not alienated and abstracted. So what if what if we maybe just got it wrong and they're right? And then we should just like give up on the Western thing and I'll go be Eastern.
1: <laughs> I don't think that that would be uh, welcomed. <laughs> For the reason that I just gave. But There'd are no not reason. suggesting
0: that one is right and one is wrong, right? Uh, that, no, that, they're not. They're not. They're, I mean, Western has they're, cool they're stuff just, about it, but they do they're just, too. They're just
1: different sensibilities right. originating in different technologies of conversation.
0: So we don't have to have a war over this. It's not like we got to resolve it. We can somehow yin-yang it, right? We can both can cooperate yes. with each other.
1: Absolutely. The only break that develops in this is not a break between different human sensibilities. It's a break between human sensibilities and non-human sensibilities. That becomes much more difficult to reconcile.
0: So non-human is robots and and technology, but non-human is also concepts like the nation
1: state or the corporation, right? Well, these abstractions wind up being the result of the technological environment that gives birth to them. The nation state is typically tied to the Treaty of Westphalia in 1648. So we We wind up in the print era with uh, nationalities, with vernacular languages, breaking down. uh, Not to be techno-determinist,
0: but it's a piece of technology, of mediating technology that then determines a whole lot about how
1: we interact as people. Well, I would say determines becomes difficult in that sentence because determines is so closely associated with what we think of as efficient causality, billiard ball causality. Right. One of the things that we will be doing, we're already doing this. The Chinese, by the way, never lost this capability. And that's the capability of understanding a variety of causalities. Aristotle came up with four, material, efficient, uh, final, and most importantly, formal cause. So Marshall McLuhan, if you were to boil everything down to Marshall McLuhan, he is only trying to explore how formal causality operates in the modern world. Very few people recognize that. You may have even been involved when I brought that up on the mailing list. The result of that was an academic book uh, taking up McLuhan's cause. Uh, I think it's probably been read by right. fairly few. But well, um, what
0: you were basically suggesting was that formal cause was intertwined with the soul. Correct. And that, that the only way to understand McLuhan uh, as a media theorist is to understand his relationship and ideas around the soul. And- Correct. Media studies, particularly at that moment, was so scared of being considered a soft humanities. They wanted to be a social science, like sociology with numbers, that they were really, really intent on getting all that out of the way. And interestingly enough, it's not just McLuhan. It's Neil Postman, who they love, right? Neil Postman, the Jewish NYU guy, was saying that the only possible defense we have against the technocracy is religion. It's right. spirituality. So it's like even, even Postman was right. saying, no, 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 we got to retrieve the squishy soul part of this whole equation or we're going to be fucking lost.
1: That's right. right. In particular, I went after Walter Ong.
0: Right. But it wasn't, a- I don't think it was your tactics that what, what got you banished, but the, the soul in the machine that you were pointing to.
1: Right. Agreed. Agreed. So those two other senses that I I have not yet named in in this conversation are the cogitative power and memory. And these are names that go all the way back. The cogitative power winds up being the critical element that is able to take what is material in terms of our neurological makeup. So there are actually structures in the brain that perform aspects of these functions The cognitive power then has to hand off that already time-stamped, that already in relationship to other images, that already the senses have already been made. So there are folks running around today, as you know, who are championing the whole topic of sense-making. Typically, when I have conversations with them, I say, well, exactly which senses are you talking about? Do you understand what senses you're trying to make comprehensible in here? And and the answer generally is no, and I don't want to know. But they're not going to be able to avoid it.
0: No, sense making for them is really another word of saying um, um, storytelling. In other words, what story are we going to tell to understand what's going on around us? And that's very different than the sense making you're talking about, which is a real time uh, experience cognitive uh, 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 understanding of. Your, your world, which is a different thing. It's not what story am I going to plug it into in order to get Correct. my answer.
1: Correct. I actually once got up at a lecture by a woman from MIT on the universality of storytelling, which is clearly not true. <laughs> storytelling is a brand new phenomenon as we understand it. And uh, the, the distinction, of course, is that storytelling is make-believe. Narrative doesn't have to be make believe at all. In fact, narrative should be and will again become fairly mandatory, I think, for us to make meaning and for us to, in fact, survive these circumstances. So I'm not opposed to narratives. They're clearly a part of what we need to do. But there's a distinction between a narrative which is i'll let you decide what the ending is
0: well, then you're going back to the difference, and this is another conversation between the television environment and the digital environment. That the sense making that these folks are talking <clears throat> about is how do we translate this experience to something that we could understand on television you know, right. and what the narrativity you're talking about is oh no, how do we move this into an almost uh, a, a, a digital video game like a uh, uh, a story that you play rather than a story that you're told.
1: Yes. And and in, in particular, as you know very well, in fact, you may have even uh, brought some of these folks on to your podcast. There's a group of people who think there is something called Game B, mm. which they contrast with Game A. I know you've been on Jim Rutz, uh, yeah. f- uh, and, and he's the main promoter of this. No, life is not a game. It's not a matter of coming up with a set of rules that work. It's not a, a, a bunch of uh, pre-proto uh, Game B. I know. Um, you just build commune. a stack.
0: We've got a stack. There's a, there's a There's an item in the stack for that. We got humans. We got animals. We got mud. Right. We got soil mechanics. We right. got solar power. We got the economy. We got education. Right. It's just a module. You plug it in there. It's going to run. We worked it out. We talked to the experts. Done. <laughs> Game B, baby. So it's I have a sweet a, idea.
1: Yeah, it, it is a uh, it's an idea that that uh, is having very difficult times getting traction outside of its uh, main adherence. I
0: don't know, it gets more traction. I look at their put up a video of game B and they get they get you know tens of thousands of hits. I, I should, you know, I should only be so uh, uh, lucky to get as many hits on my little podcast.
1: Well, my prediction is that these sorts of things that have been running around are going to f- find it more and more difficult as people propose their set of rules. So the idea that you're going to send people out, you're going to put them in an Airbnb, you're, you're going to do uh, an MTV uh, f- uh, house uh, f- uh, sort of uh, phenomenon and uh, film it all and, uh, and so forth, and then try to figure out what works and what doesn't, that people will very quickly sort out how soul-defeating that entire gamification Mm. of life turns out to be. Right.
0: I want to circle back then to now now that I guess we've, hopefully the listeners have some kind of, you know, vernacular familiarity with the kinds of uh, forces and sensibilities and cognitive styles we're talking about. I mean, we get that people raised in different, social, linguistic, media environments end up holding different worldviews and relating to digital differently. And then that trickles all the way up to uh, whether it's our national or spherical sensibilities. And I look now at Russia geopolitically looks like because of this war and the way we played out the end of the Cold War, you know, with skill and lack of skill, Russia looks like they're going to align with the East. But Russia is Western, right? They're right. they're like Trumpy people there, or <laughs> that's the way I understand. Well, it. We're not the, the people,
1: the, but the leaders anyway. The they're Cyrillic kind of, alphabet is still an alphabet,
0: right? It's an and, alphabet. And, and, so and, and, and Orthodox
1: Christianity is still Christianity, right? So
0: they're Westerns, but they're going to align with China, at least geopolitically or economically. Does Correct. that make Russia – is Russia going to be East and then India is going to come over and be <laughs> West because India was East? So what's happening – in other words, is – or or are these just – is India just Eastern that's going to ally economically and, and militarily with the West even though they are East?
1: Taking us back to what you teach a two-year-old, what you do to acculturate a a newborn into the civilization in which they live, it turns out that Indian civilization is neither alphabetic nor logographic. Uh, In fact, like most languages, so this is sort of the Yogi Berra, when you come to the fork in the road, take it. it. There's the alphabetic fork, there's the logographic fork, but a lot of people didn't take the fork. They stayed in what's called a syllabary. The syllabary means you need multiple distinct characters together as a syllable. And that is how Sanskrit is structured. And if you take a look at what happened, so take, for instance, Korea. Korea was entirely a a Chinese script until the the 15th century, I believe, maybe 16th. A king decided they did not want to be completely in worldview subsidiary to China. So they invented a new alphabet. Korea uses a sort of modern invented alphabet with thousands of years of Chinese logographs behind yeah. it. What's but happened? 500
0: in years of it is enough to kind of set that into the psyche of the people.
1: Correct. Which is, uh, but, <laughs> but to be fair. Yeah. There's a great deal about Korean culture, which remains from the past. In particular, the belief in some form of gods or aliens descending from the sky and producing the human race. This is the myth behind the Kim family in North Korea. They are thought to be descended from gods. There's a whole different relationship about dragons in Korean culture, for instance, which relates back to that. So I'm not not saying that even after 500 years, And to be fair, the old script did not disappear immediately. When a king says we have a new script, such as Kamal Ataturk did, shifting from Arabic uh, to Roman characters, the country and the world keeps on using the old system, except for official purposes, because all the king can really do is, is make sure that your birth certificate is in the new script. Japan invented new scripts. Every Japanese child is taught a relatively small number. Right. Of logographic characters, but those are the kernel still of Japanese language around which more alphabetic, more phonetic, different scripts. There are three different classes of scripts. Right. Well,
0: even Chinese has simplified Chinese, which is exactly a more phonetic version.
1: of Exactly. And, and actually, to be fair, because the keyboards of all the devices that Chinese use are not Chinese keyboards. They're alphabetic keyboards. Right. So that's changing things. That, change, that changes things. Now, what happens when you type a series of characters on an alphabetic keyboard? It comes up on the screen with the with the Chinese logograph. Oh, it does. So it, the, the machine is—you're wow. you're not ultimately providing somebody with an alphabetic. You're providing them with a logographic. Right. But the the user interface is alphabetic. Fascinating. So you're doing so, both. You're holding both in mind. Correct.
0: Right. And correct. and just so people understand what we're talking about, I mean, it's it's. Even just in the West, these changes of media environment change everything, and smart people at each stage have known it. You know, the rabbis were, many of them were very, very upset that they were going to take the Torah, which was an oral told thing and right. write it down even just with a a, a scratchy on a goat skin that it right. was going to change everything in europe in the after gutenberg there were catholic priests and and who were really really upset that they were going to take the manuscript bible and right. put it in a printing press and it wasn't just cuz people were going to be able to read it it's because the environment of the holy word was going to change and and our sensibility about it, the way it played into our culture and our psyche was going to be different forevermore. So people, this is not, I guess what I'm saying, Stallman's not saying in, in the most important way. You're not saying something new. You're saying something old, but in a new context, in the present tense, where people don't realize that it's happening again. They're back, as, as poltergeist would say. You know what I mean? They're back. The machines yeah. are back for another pound of flesh. And we are responding to it one way in the West, and they're responding to it a different way in the East. And while that's going on, there's these other shit with oil, and economics and wars right. and all of those are different because of this more fundamental shift in landscape that's going on. Yes, so, and,
1: and of course we have to finish uh, here with with what's as a result of not understanding these things. Yeah, many very innocent Ukrainians and many very innocent Russians are dying.
0: Right, and that's the part I want to understand now. So, how does that conflict war? How does those dead? leading bodies result from that misunderstanding
1: well there are, there are at least two parties who are engaged behind the scenes who are trying to resolve this one of them is the combination of the Vatican and the uh, patriarch of moscow kirill so behind the scenes here there are religious forces The Vatican has to publicly say, we went to the Russian embassy. We spent two hours there. Then they have to come out a couple of days ago saying we're willing to mediate this. They are a positive force that has very significant impact inside Russia. That's number one. It rarely gets talked about. because You don't think of Russians as Catholic. No, but the Orthodox uh, Church in Russia is far more important than the Catholic Church is in Italy, France, or anywhere else. Mm. The Catholic Church's moral authority, however it might be expressed, is far less than the Orthodox Church's moral authority in both Ukraine and in Russia. So Orthodox Christianity is seriously in the mix here, number one. Number two, if Russia is going to align with China, that alignment is going to require a resolution of this conflict. The Chinese are not going to put up with the Russians running around blowing up whatever they want to blow up. So behind the scenes, we have both the bipolar Christian world, Catholic and Orthodox, and the Chinese world trying to work out some sort of resolution. And personally, I am doubtful, given all of those factors, that, for instance, Kiev will be leveled. I don't think that's going to happen. I do think that Russia is very likely to occupy a significant portion of uh, Ukraine, but probably not all of it. And I do think that there will be other expressions as we go forward of these conflicts, which we need to be aware of ahead of time. Just to recall here, as you've already noted, it was 2006 that the statement was made that Ukraine should now be, process should begin to bring them into both the European Union and NATO. It was 2007 when Putin got up at a Munich security conference and said, that will never happen. You guys don't back off. All kinds of, of hell is gonna rain down. That is 15 years ago. Nobody who's been paying attention does not know that given the events of the course of the past year, and in particular, the Biden election, I'm not confident enough that I know enough to say if Trump had been reelected, whether this war would have happened or not. But certainly under Biden's election, the globalists, which are not primarily American-based, but are more European-based, and in particular British, English-based, they had no constraints. And so the, it is my, I'm confident that this particular conflict is a direct result of the Biden election hmm. and an attempt, maybe the last attempt, on the part of the West to say, we're back, we're organized, we all agree with each other, uh, look out. I am doubtful that such an agreement can be sustained But that is the background to what we're now dealing with. So Ukraine, I believe, will likely be a settlement will be negotiated. Other forces than what appear in the headline will be critical in doing that. And yet the outcome of this will be a a break between Russia and the West that uh, uh, really leaves them no choice, but alignment uh, with uh, China in particular.
0: And do you think if Russia becomes aligned with China, that they will become more Eastern in their I mean or is it too late for that because they have their own culture and alphabet and stuff that they'll just be kind of a, a political alignment just as just as we might be aligned with with India or or, or Africa or any other place with a different
1: sensibility I, I will be very interested to see how what you might call the Russian New Age uh, deals with all of this. There's an enormous amount of new agey, new mystical and yeah. occult. And they and brought it her- to
0: us, whether it's, you know, a about a Blavatsky right. and all that, or the co- Russian right. cosmists at
1: Esalen. Yeah, that's right. So Holy Russia is the future of Russia. James Billington's largely neglected uh, book is probably the best description that I've ever found of the Russian mentality. It's called The Icon and the Axe. Icon coming before Axe, Axe meaning what happens to your mentality when you're forced into the woods and you have to chop the trees down in order to survive. So that spiritual sense in Russia, it's got to find another place to go. And whether they go through their version of, oh, the East had it right all along, I don't know. So do you,
0: I guess you don't, you don't make predictions. You don't know you don't think that we're going to all blow up in some nuclear war now, though. You don't. No, no. So no. that's good. So you could sleep no. at night.
1: Yes, I can. At least
0: for the sake sake of the world. Even, if, you know, I mean, yes, I can. obviously you feel the 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 pain of innocent people being killed senselessly
1: over confu- unnecessary confusions. It will be our children and our grandchildren. You ultimately will need to resolve this. The world is not going to disappear, but we are in a very perilous circumstance. And so in addition to the center that you and I participate in, we're now trying to launch a for-profit consulting company called Exogenous Inc., Mm -hmm. which will try to help spread more widely what you have correctly identified as wise people have known this was happening for a long time. So we'll see over the course of the next couple of years uh, how we do. Yeah, well... God be with all of us, right? Absolutely. God help
0: us. <laughs> God help us. <laughs> thank you, Mark Stallman. If you want to see more, the uh, easiest place to go is um, digitallife.center, right? Correct. So thank you. Thanks, Mark Stallman, for being a, uh, a true member of Team Human and uh, fighting the nonviolent fight on behalf of
1: all of us. Thank you for inviting me back, Doug. Uh, it's great to Good see you.
0: And thank you for being on Team Human. Our guest today was Mark Stallman, president of the Center for Digital Life. You can find him at digitallife.center. You can find out more about Mark and all of our guests at TeamHuman.fm, where you can also become a supporter of the team. Find me on Discord. I'm in there way more often. We're gonna I think we're gonna start to do a uh a weekly sit, a weekly, like just a 20-minute meditation. I'm trying to discipline myself to start sitting. Um, it's really, it does a lot. Um, so we're going to try to do that. Uh, maybe uh, uh, it's on Saturdays or something, but check out the Discord. and we'll, we'll announce when we start those. Team Human is produced by Joshua Chaplin and edited by Luke Robert Mason. I'm Douglas Rushkoff, and you've been on Team Human, our last Best hope for peeps.
1: Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time.